Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 65. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionTanPuppets.com, acting the fool in it. Hi, everybody. So, uh, this is now a Raptors podcast. <laughs> you know what? We've given up. The Leafs have made us sad too many times. Uh, Raptors are my new best friend. We're yes. doing that meme. Um, <laughs> yeah, I... But you know what? We thought that it would be a little bit cool to talk a bit about the Raptors, about which you know a lot. I know very little, except I've been paying some attention recently because we bandwagons are fun. And so in light of the recent championship, the Toronto Raptors, if you haven't heard, are the champions of the NBA. They knocked out the Golden State Warriors in the finals in six games. Um, We thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about basketball about the appeal of basketball about what's going on in the city compared to hockey and kind of maybe if hockey could take a few lessons from basketball at times but uh just some of those differences that are really thrown into sharp relief because if you've been in toronto or really in you know huge swaths of canada at this point you felt the excitement like i went to um uh like a subway restaurant on Thursday, and the woman there was like, oh, hey, you watch Raptors? Like, first thing. Um, And just, like, immediately we were talking about the Raptors, which is just, like, a level of excitement with just, like, random conversations uh, that I don't think I've ever really had about the Leafs in Toronto, despite having lived here almost my entire life. Yeah, Um, I mean, so I I work downtown, like, in the pretty much right next to Union Station. And I swear, every third person has some sort of Raptors gear and most of it appears to be pretty new Mm. right and and that's and I I say that with no snark this is that's a good thing because that's how you get new fans and I think people can be often be gatekeepy about um new fans when a team starts having success and so in my case I've I've been a Raps fan forever I have NBA Live 2004 which is the one with where Vince Carter was on the, the 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 front of the game and then like, not long after he was on the front of the game, he famously forced a trade out of Toronto and sewered his own value and became incredibly hated in the city for quite a while. Um, so I remember, you know, kind of the dark era of being a Raptors fan, of drafting Andrea Bargnani, number one overall, which was a bit like, you know, drafting Patrick Stefan, number one overall, where right? he was just not a very good player. I remember uh, signing Jason Capono, who is like a one-dimensional shooter, to a four-year, $24 million deal. And, better or worse than Clarkson? Um, well, better, definitely better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the thing, I was still. actually like sort of on board with that deal at the start. Capona was like a legitimately useful player, but our coaching staff never seemed to really like using him. And I was also like 13 at the time, so I probably didn't have you know the the best intellectual opinions on the NBA, and I certainly wasn't very smart then. But basically, I, I remember going through all the crap times as a rap fan, and it's amazing. Now that we're we're the champions, right? The team's the best team in the NBA by by this measure. So it's amazing, and you know I, I think one thing that's very important when you're kind of a, a long time fan of a team is to not crap on people who are new to the team, because this is how teams build fan bases. They build fan bases by winning. They you know this is how you get kids to root for the teams because kids don't like watching teams lose. They like watching teams win. So a team that wins will have a lot more young fans, and those fans will end up becoming, or a portion of them will end up becoming, long-term hardcore fans, and that this is how a fan base grows. So, if you are like an act, like a long-time Raptors fan, don't crap on new Raptors fans just because they're new and because the the team won, and, and and let them embrace the fun part of it. And eventually, the Raptors are going to break their heart, 
and they'll stick around, <laughs> and that's how you know it's real. Um, but yeah, like the, it, Raptors Mania has like really, really gripped the city, and it, it's been, it shows that the city has been starved for a winner. And yes, I know TFC won, like two years ago, <laughs> and okay. I, I say this, I, I say this as a soccer fan, MLS is just not that relevant in most of North America. Like I was happy when TFC won, but it was like cool, that's nice, and then I went along with my day. Yeah, I. I don't know where that kind of silliness came from, and I think it's been tamped down kind of enough uh, recently that people have started saying, like, look, it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. But MLS is not the Premier League in their sport. The NBA is unequivocally that. Furthermore, like, if you've, you know, been in the city for any length of time, if you've been in Mississauga or Brampton or Halifax or any of these cities that are holding, like, watch parties that are drawing thousands and thousands of people... I mean, you have the rest of the country cheering for something that has Toronto in the name. That doesn't happen. You know? <laughs> like... Yeah, and, and the Raps have actually done a very good job of branding themselves as Canada's team. And it even goes down to like minor things. Where like A lot of the jerseys they wear don't have Toronto on them. It says Raptors or North. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and they, you know, they... which is deliberate for yes. sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's smart of them because they don't have... They don't, they're not cannibalized the way the Leafs are with other local NHL teams, right? So they can tap into that, and the Blue Jays can do the same thing. Um, so anyways, I guess the, one thing we want us to talk about, to, to kind of tie this back to the NHL, is that um, both of us ended up watching a lot more of the NBA playoffs this year than the NHL playoffs. And that's not atypical for me. Um, even when the Leafs lose, which they have in the first round, the last three seasons, um... I typically watch more of the rest of the NBA playoffs than the NHL playoffs. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, both of us are pretty hardcore fans, right? We both watch upwards of 70 Leafs games a year, other teams' games. We have a weekly podcast. We follow the league pretty closely. I'm comfortable saying we're well above average in terms of how much attention we pay to the NHL. Yeah, Um, which is probably not a good thing, but... uh, No, no, it's not not (laughs) a But we're here now, Yes, But at the same time, you know, this... Is it a problem for the NHL that people like us watch more of the NBA playoffs this year than the NHL playoffs, right? And, and the, the obvious counter to that is no, this is a one-time thing with the Raptors, you know, doing so well and kind of cannibalizing us. But I mm-hmm. wanted to get your thoughts on that and, I guess, about the viewership of the NBA versus the NHL in general. Yeah, it's something that's interesting to think about. So, so you know, like, I, I feel like the thing about hockey fanship is I'm not going to escape it. Like... It was just one of those things that, you know, you're born into, like the Catholic Church, and it's kind of tough to leave, you know. Uh, I can remember watching the Leafs play from the time I was like three or four. I'm kind of in it to win it. It's the only sport that I ever like really kind of intuitively understand. And it's worth noting that in terms of American ratings, the Stanley Cup final did fine. Yeah. You know, it's not spectacular or something the the nhl is pretty clearly the fourth of the the big four sports but you know it's certainly i think the league is going to chalk that up as a general success and that's fine um they had two big american markets uh having an exciting seven game series and that's terrific but having just like briefly visited the nba where everything was kind of shiny and new to me i can't help noticing that um for lack of a better word, personality is a huge thing in the NBA. And it's so muted in the NHL. And we complain about this kind of 
in a vague way a lot. We talk about like cliched interview quotes. For one thing, hockey's kind of a read and react sport in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of it's so fluid that it's a lot harder to describe what's going on in an intelligent way in the heat of the moment. And sometimes even after, you know, in basketball, I would see often, uh, to take an example from the finals, the Raptors were putting Fred Van Vliet on Steph Curry. And there was a lot of talk about how Van Vliet is an effective defender against the best shooter in the NBA. And what an interesting matchup that is for a guy who's, um, you know, a good player, quite a good player, but who's clearly like really specializing in that role. You can't really glue guys to other guys in the in the NHL in that same way. That's just a function of the sport. Because again, it's too fluid in terms of you need to have a sort out as the guys come into the zone and figure out who covers who. And on the kind five an... changes as well. I mean, the, in, yeah. in, in the NBA, uh, you can stagger players. Players only come in on stoppages, right? So you have a lot more control over who you're matching up against, right? And in, in fact, um, in the... Raptors second round series against the Philadelphia 76ers. The 76ers have this amazing center named Joel Embiid, who's the most, one of the most dominant big men um, in the league, maybe the most dominant. And the Raptors uh, and Nick Nurse actually faced a lot of criticism for not basically tethering the minutes of Marcus Gasol, who's the Raptors center and someone who is very well equipped to deal with a player like Embiid, for not tethering their minutes together so that you always had Gasol on Embiid. But the fact mm-hmm. that that's even possible, even though the Raptors didn't choose to do it, and I think they should have, and they eventually started to do so later in the series, but they should have done it quicker. Um, the fact that you can do that, that's an option that's not available to any NHL coach, right? Like, we talk about matchups a lot in the NHL, and, you know, how Mike Babcock likes to chase matchups and has, you know, a particular role in mind for certain players on his team, but he can't s- say, okay, yeah, John Tavares, you're spending literally every second against Patrice Bergeron. Right? He can try mm-hmm. that, but it's, it, you're never going to get to 100% accuracy there. It's impossible. It's just the nature of the game. And the nature of the game also means that the NHL is and hockey is it's less obvious about the, imp- the st- impact of stars is less obvious. Because A, they don't play as much. And B, you can't engineer situations where I can't engineer a situation where I say, okay, John Tavares, you're going to have the puck on your stick in the offensive zone almost every time we get the ball. Or every, t- every time we get the puck. Whereas with the mm-hmm. Raptors, I can say, yeah, Kawhi, we're giving the ball to you. Like the offense is running through you 85% of the time that we get it. It's just so much more structured. And that allows for stars to have a more notable impact. The fact that they play more has also helps there. And it makes it easier to analyze and easier to talk about. And I think easier for, a, for new fans to get in on it. Because it's pretty intuitive. Yeah, there are certain things that will jump right out at you in basketball. That hockey, you kind of only notice with the general accumulation of watching a bunch of times. The closest you come to that kind of, we have a distinct setup and it's running through particular guys, is on power plays. Yes. You know, I I think you can figure out pretty quick that Mitch Marner runs our first unit right now. But there is an issue there, and that's not um, anyone's fault. I say this as someone, you know, obviously we both love hockey and you get this feel for it. But it does make it a little harder to be intuitive, and it does, I think, generate lesser analysis. Justin Bourne had a piece on this recently, um, and I thought it was really good just talking about why exactly is it that NBA players and coaches and analysts can talk so consistently about structure. You you know, I I would read um, 
guys like Zach Lowe on ESPN, even before I was really following the Raptors much, just because it's sometimes nice to read really good sports writing. You know, even as a blogger, it's kind of nice to be aware of, uh, you know, people who are doing a good job of this and think, you know, hey, maybe one day I'll incorporate a few of those things. And certainly the standard of the best analysis in the NBA really stands out. I'm not talking about the the Skip Bayless nonsense or stuff where you're mad all the time because every sport has, like, the, Mar- the Mike Milbury-level goons who just don't know really what they're talking about. But... There is like a quality of analysis and there is an emphasis on the individual player and what he's doing in each system and stuff like that. And it really jumps out at you and you get a feel for the personality of the player almost, partly just because you're reading in stuff online. But I think of a guy like Kyle Lowry, who's a, you know, a longtime Raptor at this point and who's now like kind of the gritty veteran, but even just watching the play, you watch him go out there and he basically takes charges. In other words, he gets in the way of guys who are much bigger than him and he gets bowled over sometimes and he gets up off the floor and he just keeps going out there and playing like extremely persistent physical defense against guys he's giving up like six, seven, eight inches to. And even as like someone who doesn't watch that much basketball it was hard not to be kind of attracted to that and I got a little bit of it from watching Tyler Ennis so I'm not saying it doesn't happen in the NHL but so many of the players so quickly I was like oh this guy is this guy and some of that of that is narrativizing some of that is putting players into archetypes but even in the on-court product you just get a feel for certain personalities quick in the NBA yeah. Uh, again, I just think that's like a difference. I don't think that that, that part is anyone's fault. No, and, and, just, and we should yeah. be clear. You mentioned this before. Like, we both really love hockey. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I worry that people are going to be like, well, why don't you just do a basketball podcast? Man, if I could escape the Toronto Maple Leafs, don't you think I would have done it 20 years ago? Yeah. Like, like ho- <laughs> hockey is an amazing, an amazing sport. Mm-hmm. And there's things that the NBA and that this kind of, there's, there's disadvantages to being a sport like the NBA is too. And I'll, we'll get into that at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but hockey is so fun, and it, it, the, the things that make it tough to analyze also make it super fun. It's so fluid. Uh, it's so chaotic. There's moments of just absolute brilliance that, you know, especially when you start to play hockey a bit, right, and you, you realize how hard it is to just even... It's almost like hockey is a weird sport in that you have to learn how to, this entirely different system of moving around, and you have to get competent mm-hmm. at that, and then you have to play in a sport. So you have to get good at, like okay, I need to be able to move without thinking. I need to be able to, like in basketball, you need to be able to run, cut, jump, all that sort of stuff. Hockey, you need to master a very weird set of skills in skating just to move around. And then you're like, okay, now I have to be good at hockey. Yeah, but, and it, that's a whole secondary thing. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's such an amazing and complex sport. But the, the, the things that also make it fun to play and fun to watch make it tough to analyze and tough to really, um, it, it makes it a bit less beginner friendly, I find. Right? Especially where a lot of the game happens around the boards or in front of the net. And you know, people laughed at the Fox tracking puck thing in, back in the 90s, right? But that's mm-hmm. a very real problem. I, I talk to people now. Or like, I, I had um, a Leafs playoffs game on. Uh, I was just watching on my, on my computer at one point at, uh, in my grad student space at, at U of T. And a, a friend of mine just came over and was like, watching for a couple of minutes. Like, how, and he, he literally said, like, how do you see the puck? And this, this is like, a smart guy. 
obviously. Yeah. Um, it's hard to see the puck if you're if you're not used to it. When you watch hockey for a while, you get accustomed to knowing, okay, here's where the puck is going to be, because you're, you're just used to it. But it's not very beginner friendly. It's tough, and there's not a lot people can really do about that, uh, or that the NHL can really do about that. It's just a function of the sport, and that's you know one of those things. Yeah, it's true. I'll say this. Um, honestly, I think that this is true of most people. A lot of the time, I know where the puck is while watching hockey because I know what the players are doing and reacting to it. Like, I look where each guy's head is pointing and which way he's moving and which way he wouldn't be moving if the puck were somewhere else. As odd as that sounds, like, you can sort of see it in the way that the play is developing. It just takes, because... yeah, you just have to, like... If you, if you watch hockey for, a, you know, a, a few months, you, you become used to it. But it means yeah. there is a learning curve, a, a steeper learning curve than there is with basketball. Now, that said, if the Leafs and the Raptors switched spots this year and the Raptors, you know, lost in the first round and the Leafs started making a cup run, mm-hmm. this town, the Tor- Toronto, would be incredibly Leafs crazy, probably maybe to an even more impressive degree. Yeah, it's hard to even comprehend this because they haven't been out of the... Um the first round in the sort of, I want to say social media era, even though that sounds kind of dumb, but just the rise of like really kind of a new wave of rabid Raptors fandom has been in the last, like maybe five, six years. Like I'm thinking when they got Kyle Lowry and they started being unexpectedly good. Yes. Um, We haven't seen the Leafs in that, in that time span. So I'm wondering if it would be the same thing, but it would be crazy for sure. Yeah. You get people all the country. It would be absolutely wild. And I mean, I I guess one thing we should also touch on is basketball appeals to a lot more diverse set of people, generally speaking. Um, We all know the issues with hockey in terms of cost, right? Hockey is um, overwhelmingly a rich person sport and it's overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. a white person sport. Basketball is far more accessible to people around the world and also in Toronto. And I'd have to look this up, and there's probably some statistics somewhere on it, but it wouldn't shock me if among younger people and among non-white people, basketball was the number one sport in Toronto over hockey. I don't know that to be the case. It wouldn't shock me if it was true. I suspect you're right about that. I I think it's a combination of, one, the financial um, output that you need because you're much more likely to, to like a sport if you play it. Yes. As an aside, speaking of the NFL, part of the reason they've been so, um, I'm, I'm going to say, frankly, dogmatic uh, about trying to tamp down on concussion research is they recognize that longer term, if kids stop playing football because their parents are terrified they're going to get their brains knocked out, in 20 years that means that there's a significant decrease in the number of football fans. But there's the financial um, upfront costs uh, that are really tough to manage. And there's also that learning curve that we talked about. We, we were actually talking about this uh, on the site. Uh, Pascal Siakam uh, started playing basketball seriously at like 15, 16 years old. And 10 years later, he's uh, the number two guy on a championship team. I couldn't think of any major full-time NHL player who was anything like that. The closest that uh, was raised to me, which was by Species, was Owen Nolan apparently took up the game at age 11. And that's really late for hockey. Like, you kind of need to start figuring out those skills so quickly 
and it to go, get it go, good it goes at into it. Into what we were saying before with how specialized hockey is, where you have to learn this entirely different system of movement, and then you have to be good at a sport on top of that. Yeah, the result is that just it has a high entry curve at its best. That also means that I, I like I honestly believe that the speed and excitement of really high end hockey is hard to parallel. Yes. Like it's just it's incredible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is. I think it's always going to be doomed to be somewhat less accessible than other sports for that reason. You know, soccer is by definition accessible. Basketball is more accessible. Um, And hockey needs to consider what it's going to do to mitigate maybe that disadvantage. Yes. The things that make it special are the things that make it great in some ways, but they're also the things that make it niche. You yes. know, and, it, it, and the, so. and the, sorry to interrupt, but like yep. the stuff we've covered, <clears throat> the nature of hockey as a sport means it's always going to have an uphill battle to be, you know, as relevant in North America as the other other big three sports and potentially even soccer in the future. If MLS ever becomes kind of a high end league as opposed to kind of a mid level league like it is right now. Mm hmm. But I think there's also things that the NHL and that hockey could do differently to, you know, kind of make up this gap to some degree and to make themselves more appealing to people who they may be missing out on as of right now. And again, this is not to say I'm very kind of leery of people who are, are, and this is kind of very common hockey Twitter thing where it's like the the NHL should be exactly like the NBA, the utopia of sports. Yeah, right. well, I mean, what's that tweet about? Um, <laughs> you keep making changes to it, and of course the end result is it turns out you've just made hockey into basketball. Yeah, and like, <laughs> look, I do not believe that the NBA is perfect or anywhere close to perfect, and like, we'll, we'll talk about... Actually, I'll talk about this right now. One of the major things that annoys me about the NBA is how much focus there is on the game outside the game, where it's like, so, so one example is, um, so the Raptors win the championship. About three seconds later, um, the, NBA, the NBA's version of like Bob McKenzie, essentially, tweets that mm-hmm. the Washington Wizards are looking to hire the Raptors president of basketball operations, Masai Ujiri, for maybe upwards of $10 million a year. Right? So they, the, literally, Kawhi Leonard hasn't even lifted the finals MVP trophy yet. And there's already discussions like, oh, can the Raptors keep Masai? Oh, yeah, right. I was actually mad about that. And it's like, can we let, <laughs> can, can we let this shit breathe for a second? And you know, <laughs> I, I listen to a lot of NBA podcasts, and one of them, and I don't think they meant anything by this. It was kind of an offhand comment, but like they were talking about the basketball, like they were talking about the finals. Like, yeah, this this sh- is shaping up to be in a really good final series, and more importantly, it really shapes up how things are changing for pre agency too. And the fact that mm. they added more importantly there, and I I don't think they meant anything by it, but they they just said it kind of offhand, but. I was thinking, that's not the free agency isn't more important than the series that literally decides who wins the the, the league. That's why we're here. Like we're we're, like... Here, we're here to watch the basketball, right? But like, there's a huge focus on star players and movement, and you know the drama of it. Of like, oh, you know, it's it's very it's it never has the saying that sports are soap operas for men, which is a, a very gendered and you know somewhat misogynistic saying in general. But um, never has that is that more kind of broadly applicable than it is to the NBA, where the TMZ-esque drama of it is really, really played up, and it's made even stronger by the fact that stars are so, so important in the NBA, as we covered before. 
you don't get that sort of thing in the NHL. And perhaps you kind of go the other way with the NHL. But for, could you could you imagine um, after someone lift like as someone lifts the cup, a reporter asking them about their free agency decision in the NHL? It, it would be they would get lambasted. Oh yeah, they'd be run out of the, out of the league like, probably. Why are you he, like why are you mentioning that now? But that happened to uh, Kawhi Leonard, and then Kyle Lowry was asked about his best friend being traded for Kawhi Leonard. You know, ten months earlier. Yeah, on the court, like, it, it's it's the, the focus on the personal drama and the the reality TV aspect almost of the NBA can be really frustrating because the game itself is really fun and mm-hmm. player movement is fun, but it gets taken to an extreme where um, it's almost seen as the main point where and the basketball is a sideshow. And it, you, it, a funny way to look at this actually is um, if you look at uh, the Reddit and this NBA subreddit. It's, I believe its highest traffic days every year are July 1st, which is NBA free agency. Yeah. It's not the finals, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so that's, that's one thing that really frustrates me, and there's others. But anyways, that was a bit of a side topic rant. Is there anything that the NHL can learn from, from the NBA in this case, and in particular how it's kind of taken over what was a you know, very traditional, strong NHL town in, in, in the NHL? Or in, 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 in Toronto, and do we think that's a, a potentially a permanent thing? I think that some of this stuff is going to be permanent games. I think the Raptors have already, by their years of consistent contention, have made serious inroads. Yes. Um, and I think that they've done a really good job. I, I think you have to say, and again, I think it's easier to draw a line between this player is doing this and this GM slash president of basketball ops acquired him. But Ujiri has done a brilliant job. Absolutely. And so he deserves a lot of credit. I will say that there's something that stands out to me and it's the personality thing that I was talking about. And I don't know how much of this you change because so much of it is baked into hockey culture and particularly um, white Canadian culture where there's like almost a pathological fear of the first person singular pronoun. Like you really are... Frankly, there's a bit of a tall poppy thing almost, even when guys are obviously like brilliant players and they're kind of tamped down and they're told to like to keep it in line. Um, Whereas in the NBA, there is a lot of personality where you'll get guys who are saying, yeah, I'm the greatest. Fuck yeah. And you say, well, you know, I don't like that. I don't like that level of arrogance. I'm saying the general you. Some fans don't like that. But I'm thinking... You get a feel for these people, whereas in hockey, everything is so stifled down. And it's like, we're going to do it the way that we've always done it. And it feels like it's so uphill to make any kind of change or improvement. And the worst part of it is, you can see glimpses of personality in a lot of these players that never get to come out. Um... I mean, recently, I'm thinking of something like Austin Matthews in terms of, like, his clear love of fashion and stuff like that. One, ten years ago, I'm not sure you would have, like, really heard too much about that. Yeah, it was a whole thing with... It's gotten Alexander better Douglas now than it, than it was, certainly, and the, the rise of social media and players' ability to express themselves unfiltered has helped that. Or, or yeah. through, their, through their own words, I wouldn't say unfiltered, but, you know, they have more agency over how they're portrayed. Yeah, and Kyle Dubas, I think, has been vocal and as far as I can tell he walks the walk in terms of like let the players be the players but Lou Lamorello is still in the NHL 
And I think he's been successful. I have some respect for his abilities. I think the Eberly contract he just signed was pretty good. Yeah, it's an excellent contract. I don't know how they got that. That, that was a really... That's a, I mean, maybe this is, this is one of Lamorello's strengths, evidently, right? Or at least if we look yeah. back the last few years. He has signed some really, really nice contracts to good players. It's when he signs yeah. contracts to bad players that it's... <laughs> that's where they get you. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's worth noting that there's still just sort of a reluctance to kind of be funny. Like, I'm thinking that there was some quote, um, uh, Taylor Hall in Edmonton uh, broke some sort of scoring record for, for the franchise. And I, I think it was, was it Glenn Anderson? I don't know. It was um, somebody who came up to him and he was like, oh, uh, you'll be coming for my record now, but you'll, you'll never get it or something. And he was kind of razzing him. And... Taylor Hall rolled his eyes and he was like, yeah, congratulations on scoring like seven goals a game on guys who didn't know how to goaltend in 1983. And like, I could, that's I a good... I could be misremembering it, but it was like a, it was like a game-winning goal thing. And it's like, yeah, it's like, congrats on scoring the fourth goal in an 8-3 win. Yeah. Yeah. Like he just was not having any of it. And that was funny. You know, like that was actually a good dunk. And Taylor Hall is actually clearly like a really funny guy. Yeah. He, he's he's but... had such a... Amazing turn uh, from being able to on un, being unable to pass his boating license to being a pretty you know coming off as a very astute guy and a very you know like kind of real student of the game. It, it, I've been very yeah. kind of impressed by him, and it was probably harsh to judge him by his boating failures. Um, yeah, before. I think that was probably a function of not taking it seriously. Yes, most like <laughs> yeah, because uh, clearly he's a bright dude. Uh, and, you know, I know sometimes in his youth he wasn't as responsible. He said himself as he wished he was. But, like, I'm thinking stuff like that where it's, like, if we could be a little bit less uptight as a sport culture about some of that stuff, where it's, like, you could report on that and instead of everyone being like, oh, my God, has he dishonored the sport? And, and you know, people will say, have a laugh and say, oh, well, y you know, because there's a lot of this behind the scenes. It gets said. Um have a little bit of fun with the game there. Uh, you know, instead of us finding out about this in a tweet, like, six years later, you know, I just find myself thinking that that extremely buttoned-down syndrome um, in hockey really does not do a lot of favors. And uh, it's, it, you know, I'm speaking in a general way, but there's a lot of it coming up, especially through the junior ranks, um, and this gets into a discussion of things like hazing and stuff like that. But when, you know, you have a kid who seems like he's a bit full of himself. So, you know, they throw, this is what happened to Evander Kane, but you know, that they throw his, his clothes in the, the shower and wash it. And he has to, you know, walk home in wet clothes or something like that. Like there's a whole culture in hockey of take him down a peg. If he feels like he's getting too big for his britches. And there's more of a culture in the NBA of if you can be great, um, we're going to let you be great. You just have to show it on the court. And there's lots of rises and falls and they're constantly kind of, you know, sniping at one each other and jostling for position and stuff like that. But I think it makes it a little truer instead of, you know, what do we get in terms of acceptable public persona for hockey? I saw a tweet the other day that... Uh, the Matt Niskanen trade to Philadelphia, which we can talk a little bit about later. Um, the Flyers gave him a nickname and it was Niski. 
And it's like, oh, what a surprise. They took the first syllable and tacked a Y onto it. That's what counts as personality in hockey that you're allowed to display publicly. And I think hockey as a whole would be doing itself a huge favor, both in being more fun and in attracting more people if they were allowed to be a little bit less you better stick in the mold. Yeah. And so. I don't think this... I think hockey, for the reasons we laid out earlier, it's always going to be the fourth of the... of Or if, at least for the foreseeable future, it's going to be the fourth of the major North American sports. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think... I don't think, you know, if you let hockey players, you know, be more... Show more of their personality. I don't think that, that gets them ahead of baseball or ahead of the NBA or anything like that. I, but I think... If if I'm trying to run hockey, I, I want to consider how am how am I going to get future fans, right? Mm-hmm. And I think by and large, the the product itself is pretty good. Um, it it's a fun it's a really really fun sport to watch, and I'm not I'm not as concerned with like say this particular year where in Canada anyways. Uh, the NHL playoffs had really, really low ratings, and the NBA playoffs had really, really high ratings. So I think it's those are really, really driven by local mm-hmm. th- local success and failure. But I do think on a national level, there's there's more interest from the average NBA fan in the best NBA teams than there's interest in, from the average NHL fan in the best NHL teams, or at least the NHL teams that have made it far in the postseason. And... I, I think one reason why is I think it's very hard I think to assess to okay so if I'm if I'm watching if I'm watching the Raptors in Golden State it's obvious that this is really high level basketball that there's that they're incredibly good at what they're doing they're making really tough shots defenses are playing so hard it's really it's really obvious to see how high quality it is and mm-hmm. comparatively if I see Atlanta versus New York in the NBA, I'm like, okay, yeah, this this is garbage. Like, these guys suck. The difference, <laughs> the difference between good basketball and bad basketball is enormous. Like, it's so mm-hmm. obvious. With hockey, I feel like if you put a random game with two uh, playoff quality teams on, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. And I think stylistic differences between teams are less obvious in hockey. And that's not to say they don't exist, but it's not as easy to point out, and that's because of the fluid nature of the game, right? In the mm-hmm. NBA, teams take on the personality of their stars to some degree because their stars are so impactful, right? With with Golden State, when they're healthy, it's their entire kind of MO is, yeah, we have three of you know the best offensive players in the world. No lead is ever safe. We can hit any shot pretty much whenever we want. We are just an offensive juggernaut who you can't really stop. You can't hope to stop us. You can hope that we get cold. Mm-hmm. Right? When you look at um, at the Raptors, you see, okay, we have we have this dominant, we have this dominant, this ball-dominant superstar. We have a bunch of really ferocious defensive players. And it, like we take on that personality of, you know, this is a hard-nosed team that plays defense, that moves the ball, that has no weaknesses, and has one guy who can put them over the top. And it, it mm-hmm. becomes obvious to see that within... Very, within a very, very short amount of time when you watch them. With hockey, I, I feel like I couldn't really describe Calgary's style and how it differs to, I don't know, Pittsburgh. Like, I could say some vague things. I can say, okay, yeah, Calgary, you know, they have a really, really good blue line. 
I can look at the data and say they, they reduce shots against. Pittsburgh has that dominant Crosby, Malkin pivot that, you know, in the playoffs can be really dangerous, although it wasn't this year, where, you know, they can just play 50% of the, or 60, 70% of the game. Mm-hmm. So I can talk in vague ways about that, but I think it's much harder to pin that down, and it's much less obvious that you're watching really, really high-quality hockey. And I think one thing that I like about the NBA, even though it takes some shit for being too predictable at the higher end, at the higher levels, which it absolutely is, you know that the teams you're watching in the conference finals are, you know, generally the best teams. They're not always the four mm-hmm. best teams, but they're almost always, you know, in the top six, in the top seven. Right? They're always yeah. really, really good teams. And you can identify what makes them different very easily. And in the NHL, it almost feels at times like, okay, yeah, we, we had a bunch of really good teams that were all kind of similar, and we flipped a bunch of coins, and these are the four that came out, and yeah, we're going to go for it again. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens. I, I mean, th- this uh, impinges a little bit on another thing, and I'm always a big advocate of the, the NHL should constantly be trying to increase offense, and they've actually succeeded to some extent. Um, yeah, the, the last two years, the last two years have been high offense years, relatively speaking. Yeah, relatively speaking, but I'm thinking like, I want like teams to like clear four, push five goals a game each, and you say, oh, do you want to just watch the Oilers again in the '80s? No. What I'm saying is, the more offense you have, the more exciting plays that you have, and I still firmly believe that plays are generally more exciting if they're more likely to end in goals. Um. I just believe that that is something that gives skill a more visible opportunity to tell. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. One, for sure there's some there's a potential for upsets in the NHL. This year, I mean, went bananas on upsets, yeah. frankly. Um, the, the final was like, I think you could plausibly say, okay, like these are two of probably the top six oh, teams yeah. no, in no. the NHL. St. Louis, so that was, St. Louis and Boston are both really good teams. and Two teams that I would have had in my top five. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but at the same time, I think that the very randomness of it, to some extent, leaves openings for a lot of narrativizing to sink in. And especially, like, there's been some crowing from predictable quarters about, like, yeah, well, Pat Maroon, who's especially inclined to say this, was like, uh, it's old-style hockey, that, uh, that speed stuff is out. And I was thinking, Pat Maroon of all people. Pat Maroon had 28 points this year. And the only really good season he's had, uh, he was playing wing with Connor McDavid. And he got 27 goals when previously he's never broken 14. Um, I don't know if I'd be shitting on the speed game too much there, Patty. Also, the the narrative that (laughs) St. Louis and Boston are these big, bad, tough teams is like, I don't know. Not really. It's not really that true. They're good. But you know what? St. Louis is a really genuinely good defensive team, and they're tough on the cycle. Yeah. Like, like there's there's some validity there, but, like, it's not like they're going out there built by Mike Keenan or something, and they're winning with no skill. Um, Boston has some terrifying offensive weapons. Boston, you know? Boston is not hard carried, but, like, their value proposition is we have the best line in the world, and that line is very good, not because they're incredibly tough, they, although they are, they're very good because... They can score like hell, and you know, like Brad Marchand's not a big guy, but he's tough. It's not—he's not like a brute or anything. He's an asshole, but he's a very skilled mm. asshole. Patrice Bergeron's not a physically imposing guy, but he plays really well. David Pasternak's not a physically imposing guy, but but he's just talented as shit. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. Like... So it's like like the, these teams are not 
these teams are not really I don't I wouldn't say they are built on physicality to an impressive degree. I mean the the, the one guy on Boston who is I get, like Chara is still like that because he's six nine and five million years old. But mm-hmm. I, I think even if you look at the hit numbers, the, these aren't two of the roughest teams in that regard either. I don't think I'd have to look that up though. I don't want to talk out of my ass. Yeah, well, I mean, they do have some like you know Brandon Carlo mm-hmm. is big, and I think it's also fair to say he's physical. Um, Colton Pareko is one of those special guys who is good in every dimension, mm-hmm. like big and physical, and also genuinely really good. But this is the thing about these narratives, because it's a complex game, because there's a lot of randomness in the game, because there's a high learning curve, all of these things that we've talked about have a way of kind of obscuring the game to the casual observer, maybe, or making it tougher to understand. And as a result, people kind of have to go with narrativizing from people who supposedly know better. And I think... That does happen in the NBA, too, but it's more easily counteracted in the NBA, because... You can point to different stylistic things, and it's it's easier to fact check. You, there's more data; it's yeah. easier to analyze. Um, so, yeah, I just want to point that out. Yeah, absolutely, and of course, you know, there are always going to be, you know, people who are old school. But I do find myself thinking, like, you look at the three point revolution in the NBA that really changed the whole league in the last ten years. Yes. you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it, it's you know basically the, the conclusion that. Um, three-point shooting was kind of the name of the game to some extent. Yes, and, and, and to, people have yeah. criticized this revolution too because it, <coughs> so a, a team that takes this to an extreme, and this goes again to talking about team styles and how they're more easily defined in the, in the NBA, is, is the Houston Rockets who famously, um, basically it's called Maury Ball after their GM, uh, uh, Daryl Maury, and they basically attempt to only shoot at the rim or threes, mm-hmm. right? And, and they were the first team on this. And they play a very unwatchable style of basketball. It's it's really, really boring to watch it in a lot of ways because they have this incredible star in James Harden. And Harden is one of the best offensive players in NBA history. Uh, he And what he typically does is he, isol- he isolates his defender and he will... They'll either run a high screen or he'll try it uh, and just... He'll go. He'll either go one-on-one or they'll run a high screen and they'll try and get either a shot at the rim or a three. And a lot of it results in him taking kind of these ugly contested step backs, which he's incredibly good at, and they go in at a shockingly high rate. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, he, he gets to the rim, tries to draw a foul, or dishes it off, right? And it, it's very... It can be very predictable, but it's very, very mm-hmm. effective. And it's also very, very boring because there's a lot of foul baiting. There's a lot of just kind of... Chucking, yeah, he dives a lot, yeah, chucking of threes, and it's a it, it can be a high variance thing, right? And and people have criticized that like oh the NBA is just becoming who hits their threes in any given game, mm-hmm. which is you know a bit of a fair criticism. It's kind of like the criticism we have of hockey, where it's like it feels like there's all these really evenly matched teams who are pretty similarly good, mm-hmm. and it's like okay, well who which team gets a shot going in off a shin pad, the way Brad Marchand did in, in game six to tie the game at 1-1 against the Leafs. Yeah, right? I, I, that can be frustrating, and it's sort of, I think you can help it a little bit in terms of if you have more offense, skill is more likely to tell. Yeah, but it, it's just the, nat- some extent, it's the nature of the game. Know. It's the nature of the game, mm-hmm. right? And, like, I, I, one thing I do want to, I guess, keep emphasizing is that, like, I don't think hockey should 
try and be basketball and like you know say oh you know let's try and stamp out a huge amount of variance out of the game or as much variance as possible it, it, it there are different sports that have different appeals and part of hockey's appeal is that things are random they're you know different te- there's almost never a guarantee of success from anyone it can be so hard to predict and so you know hard to foresee and mm-hmm. you know there's there's middle grounds as to you know how much predictability is is the right amount is does hockey have too much does basketball have too little whatever um but i i think it's hard to mess around with that without fundamentally changing the sport and i don't think that the nhl should fundamentally change the sport in that way i think a lot of it has to do more with growing being more accessible to people who they have not been accessible to before yeah absolutely it's, and being more there should be an attitude people. of like how can we welcome people in as opposed yes. to the, the gatekeeping that you see speaking of hockey i think that partly being a little bit more niche partly being a little bit harder to access also inculcates a feeling of we don't even want to be popular really among some fans like they kind of resent interlopers um and you know there are a lot of things going on in that thought line but i think that that's really counterproductive there should be an attitude of we want to make it easy to like our game for sure and that doesn't mean that you have to be basketball it just means that you have to be open yes and i mean i I wouldn't really worry about canada becoming a basketball country hockey is so ingrained in the culture i think maybe generations down the line we'll see a more equal split between the two but hockey is still very much the sport on the national consciousness and i think this is more of a a one-time thing with the raptors in a position where they're succeeding and they're also succeeding in a way where it's like it's do or die mm-hmm. right like there, there there isn't a long-term plan to be a contender for a raptor or there isn't like an obvious path to which they're contenders that's guaranteed after this season yeah. right it was like okay this is our shot Kawhi might leave we gotta do whatever we can now right so that it's kind of it's like a one last ride type of thing yeah and you know that, that's what made it so exciting it, it was like i do honestly want to say i feel like we've talked more about a non-hockey sport than we ever will on our hockey podcast but um i i do have to say honestly that was one of the most exciting things that i've been able to witness like that four bounce shot at the rim mm-hmm. uh to knock out the 76ers that was crazy it, it's amazing so. and <laughs> and playoff basketball is incredibly intense and in, in a very different way than playoff hockey is where it's like playoff hockey there's like these long periods of not a lot happening, but any, at any given moment, you're three seconds away from everything shifting. And basketball is like someone slowly tightening their th- hand around your throat just the entire game. Right? Yeah, it's, like this yeah. constant, it's like getting wrapped by an anaconda. It's just, you know, it's yeah. just this constant like, oh man, every, everything feels so big right now. Yeah, the way that I, I, I felt about it, it's sort of a related thing, was basketball feels like almost like death by a thousand cuts. Like every single play, every time, you know, Curry makes some three that shouldn't be even goddamn possible. You feel like, oh, that's another another slash of us. Whereas hockey in the playoffs feels like Minesweeper. Yeah. Like every play, it's like, oh, you stepped on that one? Nope, didn't explode that time. Didn't explode that time. Oh, and then you get blown up. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, it, it is... Uh, it's been sort of incredible to experience. And I say this as, uh, you know, as someone who lives in Toronto and loves my city also, it's been just really cool to see 
everybody be genuinely excited. Like, everybody. Um, you, you know, my parents are excited. Um, the people I work with are excited. The people, you know, you just talk to, you see on the street, people are excited, you know. And, and that's been really cool to be a part of. Yeah. So and this will, I, this will undoubtedly yeah. create some long-term Raptors fans and increase the Raptors fan base. The Raptors fan base is already, I think, not that different in size compared to the Leafs or and not that different in terms of like kind of passion. They're, they're both really, mm-hmm. really, really passionate, really good fan bases in my opinion. And I obviously am biased saying that as a member yeah. of both of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, and I, I think the Raptors fan base is going to continue to grow. And on a Toronto specific level, the Leafs need one playoff run where they can do the same. And this is something Shanahan mm-hmm. brought up when he came here is like kind of reclaiming the lost generation of Leafs fans where from 2004 to 2012, 2013, Kids in those days, a lot of them are not Leafs fans. Like, a lot of kids who were, you know, six, seven, eight years old at that time grew up to be Penguins fans or Flyers fans or Bruins fans. I, I went to, last year, I went to a Leafs-Flyers game. And there was at least 10, 15 times, just walking around the concourse, I'd see a dad in a Leafs jersey and a son in a Flyers jersey. And the son was, mm. like, maybe, you know, 10 or 12. Yeah. Right? Um, so, like, reclaiming those fans and... That's going to happen when, when the Leafs become consistent. And also, you know, as, as we said, making it more accessible, making things more accessible to, to women, making it more accessible to minorities and people who are typically not in hockey's profile of fans is important, mm-hmm. right? And my concern is the NHL does not really appear to be good at that. And this is one thing where the NBA, I think, is unequivocally better, even though they're not perfect at this. Um, partly by nature of the fact that the NBA stars, the vast majority of them, are vast majority of them are, are non-white, right? Or And mm-hmm. even a lot of the ones who are white are European, right? They're, right. They're, it's more diverse than the NHL set of stars. And that has kind of resulted in the NBA being more progressive on this sort of front and appealing to a wider array of people and, you know, using their platforms to spread messages of, of social justice and make reference to you know, systemic inequalities and, and, and kind of let people who are disenfranchised in other parts of life and who are not um, given all the advantages that other parts of the population are, let them know that, like, we're aw- hey, we're aware of that and this is, a, this is a, a sport for you. This is a safe space for you. This is a place where you can feel welcome and happy and enjoy some incredible athletes, right? Um, the NHL seems content to put out rainbow tape every once in a while and do you can play nights, which are which are great, but in terms of mm-hmm. the attitudes of the people running the leagues, it, it, you know, this is still a place that trots out Bobby Hall whenever they can, right? Yeah. It, it's still a place that um, is not the most welcoming to women, not the most welcoming to non-straight white men, really. Yeah, no, I mean, the Bruins had a, a promotion yeah, with, with Barstool, Barstool Sports. A great example, right? Yeah, in the finals, like. And I'm sorry, like, I, I know, you know, I, I'm sorry, but, like, Barstool's a gang of assholes. Yeah, I, I think, like, brigade women online and stuff like that. Like, you are, know. There decent, <laughs> are there decent people working for Barstool? Yeah, probably. But, you know, the it, it, when your owner or president or whatever the fuck that guy is, like, has done some of the terrible shit that that guy has done, it, it yeah, that permeates the rest of your organization. Yeah. Right? And it, it's, it's low-hanging fruit to avoid these sorts of things. And it speaks... The fact that that particular promotion happened, it, it feels like 
it feels like one of those things where like there was no diversity of thought in the decision making process. Mm. Right, where it's like they had no one who would have considered, hey, are these guys like maybe these guys aren't the people we want to get in bed with for this. Right? And, yeah. And, like is is this a mistake? Yeah, and you, you know, things like that <laughs> can can go a long way and it, it, it can it can make people feel turned off from the sport and make people feel disappointed with the sport. Or make people say that sport's not for me, right? Even something mm-hmm. as simple as, as far as I know, there, like, who's the most uh, relevant woman in the NHL? Yeah, I mean, the, the name that comes to mind for me is Haley Wickenheiser, who is not in an executive position. I no. mean, she works for MLC. Yeah, but and and uh, that's not to say the NBA is amazing at this too. Although there there are, um, there's. A female ref now. Uh, there, there, were, there were two, but I think one of them retired. Violet Palmer, I think, retired. There's a couple uh, women assistant coaches, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like, that's not to say, oh, you know, mission accomplished. It's not remotely accomplished. But if you're a person of color or if you're a a woman, you can look at the NBA and see people like you have some relevance, mm-hmm. have some importance, and it's nowhere near enough. But it's better than zero which is basically what it is in the nhl right mm-hmm. and that that it's not like people are watching the nhl and saying like you know i would like the sport but there's no you know there's no female refs or female players or whatever so now i guess i don't it's not something as overt as that but it's about kind of the the, the culture of acceptance and it's something that's a bit more implicit i suppose and but, but it i do believe it makes an, an impact right because because i've experienced that myself like i i work in finance right and there's been times where like i see organizations and the entire c-level staff is is white guys and it's like you know it's not like i'm like oh it's not like i'm like oh that organization sucks but it's like oh okay that's that Mm. that's that's a thing right yeah it it does impact you absolutely yeah i i think you know the nhl is answerable for that to some extent it's just you know you have to decide what kind of steps you want to take to welcome people, to welcome new fans. And, you know, obviously for the foreseeable future, the NHL is going to be still a sport with a huge number of white players. But, like, there's always more you can do. And, you know, I I mean, we're seeing a related thing with... uh, what's happening with the women's hockey leagues and the NHL is kind of, yeah, yeah. are we involved? Are we not involved? Are we just letting it decay? That's why the, uh, like the, all the stuff that happened around the NHL all-star game, like that was free marketing, right? And and they they handled it in the weirdest way possible. Yeah. That's like the equivalent of stepping on your own applause lines. Like that was just, it's it's uh, like you you have a golden (laughs) chance to market your game to a lot of young, a lot of young girls who will become NHL fans. Right, they become hockey fans, right? Yeah. And you know, promoting that more is a good idea. And it's, I'm sure they have people analyzing this and saying, "Oh, maybe it's not worth it." From afar, it seems like it's short-sighted. But you know, this is the other thing, is that, and I believe to some extent, you know, a lot of teams, like I generally believe that when the Leafs do something, they've looked at it from a few angles. I don't think that they're always right, but I think that they have some analysis of it. The NHL is a league that still has Colin Campbell in like a senior leadership role. And I'll be blunt here. I don't think he's that smart 
Um, I don't think that, you know, his level of like penetrating analysis is that great there though. So I think in addition to the kind of group think that comes on when you have a bunch of people um, with similar experiences and backgrounds uh, making decisions, I also think that like, there's a pretty decent chance the NHL didn't really think this through. That seems to be true of a lot of their decision making. So maybe that's another thing. Like the the NBA in recent years has seemed to me like it's thinking a little bit more. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> you it's know. made mistakes as well, and it's it's, no, it's nowhere near perfect, right? Nowhere near mm -hmm. perfect. And again, like we want to be very careful to not like lionize the NBA to a degree where it's like, oh, look at this perfect sports organization. It's not even close, right? No, no. And, and I, I mean, it's a business among other yeah. things, and they're always going to make compromises in that. Interest, yeah, and in so. fact, like there's um, there was a very kind of disturbing. Uh, culture of sexual harassment in the Dallas Mavericks uh, in their mm. in on the business side of their uh, team and the NBA probably didn't go far enough in punishing them mm -hmm. and at least in my opinion like they're or, or at least in kind of punishing their owner they, they very famously kind of booted out Donald Sterling the former owner of the Clippers after it was revealed he was it, well I'm not revealed everyone knew he was racist but when they had incriminating evidence of, of it, yeah, essentially. Um, but you know that that was almost a slam dunk, right? It was no pun intended. Yeah. Um, it, it was like a there's a very obvious villain there, and it was not a well liked owner in general, right? Not an owner who was good for the league in general. They wanted to get him out, even if he wasn't racist. They would have wanted to get him out because he was a, ruining a potential premier franchise. Yeah, it was kind of a free, yeah, free shot. Exactly. So. But like when it came to the the Dallas Mavericks, who are run by what most people would consider a good owner, Mark Cuban, someone who cares about the league, who spends a lot of money, who has built a good team, they were they could have done more, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not immune to this either, but they're certainly better about it than the NHL, and in part because, as we said, they're forced to be by the fact that their players a have way more power than NHL players and are more willing to use it, and their players are just forming more diverse set of circumstances than NHL players are and are more likely to stand up for these sorts of causes that obviously we're biased here, but that we think are important. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that it all kind of brings it back around to the NHL is a niche sport, a sport that requires some kind of specialization that rewards coming to it early, that is expensive to play. Um, and I think the NHL really has to be keeping its eye on all of that. I, I mean, this is another conversation that I won't go too far with right here. But I think uh, there's a fundamental issue in terms of just how much bloody equipment is required to play hockey, which drives expenses at the lower levels. And I think that in the longest of long terms, you might see a move to make it kind of safer because then you might be able to play it with less equipment. Um, but that's... I don't think that's really on the horizon in a meaningful yeah, way. Yeah, we mentioned the concussion stuff. Oh, God, yeah. But it's just, in a general way, the the NHL should be kind of keeping its eye open to, we're not the most accessible sport. We're an exciting sport. We have a great product mm -hmm. on the ice in a lot of ways. Uh, how can we make it so that people can walk in and get to enjoying that product pretty quickly and then sort of feel the game. Like it shouldn't be, Yeah, you have to Re jump, you know, reduce five the hurdles to being a fan, essentially. Exactly. And I think the NBA has an easier start with yep, that, the but the NHL before. could learn some lessons as to how they've done it. So. That's a very good way yeah. to sum it up. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Let's so talk, we're talk a bit about the, 
<laughs> yeah, a mere hour in. Yeah, uh, we were going to talk a little bit about the draft, which is taking place next weekend. Um, I, I will say uh, the draft is kind of a hectic but fun day on our website. I just would say that at the start because, like, we're all kind of all hands on deck, constantly trying to, like, get material out on whoever's picked really quickly. So it's a bit like an old-timey newsroom where, like, Kat just, like, all right, who's got this? And everyone grabs it. So I'm a little, like, excited for that. The thing is, the Leafs don't have a first-round pick. Mm-hmm. Um, they could trade into the first round in the next week. Um, they could do it on the draft floor, for all we know. Uh, and it, it is worth noting that draft weekend is a great time to make trades because you get the GMs of every single team in, in the same place. But um, I think we should just make that a permanent thing. Like, it, every GM, you have to live in, like, you have to live in Vegas, because then we're gonna get like you know we're gonna get uh can you imagine jim benning playing poker and then you know i don't know uh paul fenton walks up it's like hey want to make a trade like you you want that 2 a.m jim benning paul fenton trade in your life (laughs) oh god i missed that yeah like just sloshed on shitty martinis and like yeah let's just have some fun out here yeah like well it it, uh... it is kind of i know it's like kind of natural and supplies to all areas of this but i feel it's like very it's very funny that like all it takes to get trades is like, yeah, just put them all in one, one spot. <laughs> Let them all talk to one another easily. And, and it's, yeah. it's not just that. It's also because draft assets are like very easily realized at that point. Like there, there's, when you're trading current year picks, you have actually some idea of, oh, who's actually going to be available. Yeah. And uh, it's before free agency. So, you know, there, it, it's easier. You, you have imminent plans. Yeah, it's easier yeah. in many ways. But I think there's actually something to be said for just, like, if you just get GMs in one spot, trades happen. <laughs> yeah, it's a, um, people have recommended doing that with the trade deadline, like making them all go to one place. But then people said, oh, you'll just make it so they'll do all their trades like beforehand so they don't have to do it on camera. But um, yeah, this, this, yeah, this so is not a serious exciting... to be clear. No, no, I'm afraid not. But it's a beautiful idea. And the idea of it is, you know, haunting me in my sleep. But uh, yeah, so we don't know. Um, what the Leafs are going to do. The thing is, if the Leafs are going to be picking their first pick in the 50s, it's extremely hard to talk in an intelligent way about who's going to be available. Yeah. I've I've seen some uh, some people do some, some interesting work on that. Um, I think, you know, people give Scott Wheeler a hard time on hockey Twitter, I've noticed, for, you know, whatever reason. But I think his draft work is really good. Yeah, I think he, he's, gonna, he's very open about the way in which he assesses players and also open about the things he got right and wrong, which I think is, he, he's, he's very intellectually honest about his draft assessments, which I think is good. And you, it, at this time of year, you get a lot of bullshit from mm. a lot of people and both fanalists and like professional people where they're like, oh, you know, I'm very confident in this 18 year old should be ranked 37th. And this 18 year old is awful, should be ranked 75th, right? And it's like, yeah. I think Scott accepts the level of variance in draft projections and is open about that, which I really, really appreciate. Yeah. He was also right about a few significant things. Mm-hmm. He's um, a pretty good track record, if you look into it. Yeah. I, I mean, he, I always remember Andreas Janssen. He was the first guy I remember saying right off the hop, this guy is a, a great offensive talent. And at the time, Janssen was a seventh-round pick. So it's not like a lot of people were going to go into the bat, bat for him. And more sadly, he was also right about 
<laughs> the Leafs burning a ton of picks on guys like Keaton Middleton. But, uh, yeah, he was also low on Emily Rassanen, who certainly doesn't look good at this point. Uh, uh, all mm. the large adult sons. Yeah, I, I, you know, I did an article about uh, the large adult sons, which were um, defensemen that were drafted under Mark Hunter's supervision, we suppose, uh, who were 6'3 or taller. And um, we're down to two of the seven that the Leafs still have rights to at this who point. Who are they? Uh, they are Emilai Rassanen, mm-hmm. who's a bit iffy, and Jordan Greenway, who I, I think, I don't think anyone should be projecting any yeah, kind of Yeah, and, and isn't Rassanen going back to Europe? Like, he's not even going to be with the Marlies next year, which I feel like if the Leafs were serious about him as a prospect, they would say, hey, come in with the Marlies, we're going to get you some, in our program and all that sort of thing. It's worth noting that the only reason that they still have the two of them, it's not necessarily a reflection that these were the best two, although Rastanen probably was by default. It's a reflection of how long we have their rights based on where they were drafted from. Mm -hmm. And if we had had to make a decision uh, as to whether or not to give Rastanen an ELC and we came to put up or shut up time, I really don't know if we would have given him one. We definitely would not have given Greenway one. So... Yeah, that hasn't worked out. But anyway, uh, the Mark Hunter era is over in Toronto, and now we are entering the second draft of the pure Kyle Dubas era. Um, and so I don't know who he's going to pick because it's, you, you know, and this is something that took me a while to accept. I used to think, like, when you pick 53rd, 54th, 55th, um, you're going to be picking guys who are between, like, 45th and... 55th on your board you know I just sort of figured it would line up intuitively but the reality is there's such divergence outside the top 10 15 20 it's very possible for someone who on your board you have ranked quite high to drop to your range just because there's such divergence so uh you know Kevin Petty was telling me this uh several years ago we were having a, a debate about uh Nick Haig who I liked as a prospect and I was saying, well, we're picking around 17th. He'll be a re- available around 17th. And Kevin was saying, someone's going to drop, though. Someone you like better than him. And that someone turned out to be Timothy Lilligren. So I don't know who's going to fall. It'll be whoever's left who's highest on the Leafs board, and we'll find out. But it's probably worth noting what Kyle did last time. And... He had the opposite of size bias. He didn't draft any skaters over 6'1". Um, he drafted a couple players from the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. So there was some element of he likes what he knows. And he drafted players who the scouting reports seemed to consistently say were smart. High hockey IQ, makes good decisions, makes the smart play. Um... And that's kind of nebulous. You know, people talk in vague and different ways about scouting reports, and it can be tough to identify what they mean. But it was really notable to me how that kept getting said about seemingly everyone he picked. Um, and that's what they say about the guy who's currently his kind of crown jewel pick, which is Rasmus Sandin, who is a smart player, who makes the smart play. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that trend, such as it is, continues to be pronounced if he goes for guys who maybe don't have the most dazzling physical gifts but who are perceived to be smart players because if they were both physically gifted and smart they wouldn't be available in the middle of the second round so i'm not sure 
who's going to drop into that range. We'll certainly write them up uh, as fast as we can and start doing research on them when they do get picked. But I think that that's something to keep an eye on just in terms of the mentality Cal Dubas has going into this weekend. Yeah, so. and I, I mean, Dubas seems to also be a fan of trading back. I'm not sure if you mentioned that. I did not, but it's worth noting that he did that um, most notably in the first round last year. He dropped from 25th to 29th mm-hmm. to pick up a third-round pick, which he used to draft my boy, Semyon Duargajinsev. And so, yeah, I, I don't know how pronounced it, it'll be to do that, but it is a way of giving yourself more kicks at the can, and as a bunch of draft pick value charts have shown, there's not all that much difference in your expected return on picks, certainly from the late second round onward and probably earlier than that. Like, it just becomes a bit of a crapshoot. So if you can get more bullets in your gun, so to speak, you are increasing your chances. Especially relevant for a team like the Leafs who have a really, really (coughs) weak prospect depth chart at this point, right? We have kind Mm -hmm. of, we have Jeremy Bracco and Rasmus Sandin. And uh, Sandin's obviously better. And so we have Sandin, Liljegren, Bracco, and then like everyone else is like kind of very, very questionable. Yeah, like, maybe, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's the thing is you have a lot of guys who are faint hopes, and, you know, I, I love Pierre Engvall as much as the next guy, but, you know, we have to be realistic about expected NHL impact. Yeah, and, so. and I mean, this is also what gets, this is perennially one of the things that um, we end up fighting with commenters about during the top 25 under 25. Oh, God, yeah. Because, um, because... For people, <laughs> and this will be slightly different for the Leafs this year because they have actually good young NHLers, but generally speaking, from 25 to 12, like maybe three of those guys will be actual NHL players at, at most. Yeah, or, if that. Yeah, and that might be overstating it. but And, and you know, the, the Leafs from 1 to 8, I think, will have actual people who you can expect to be in the NHL, and then after that it starts getting like really, really questionable very quickly. Yeah, I always remember one guy uh, told us very angrily that we had lost all credibility because of our collective ranking of Martin's circles. Um, Did we rank him too low or too high? <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> That's the thing is, I just remember he was very mad, but I, I think we ranked him around like 24th or something. Yeah. If you remember who Martin Zirkles is, you're already up on that guy. Because I like he played on the uh, I know he he was at the World Championships. He played for Latvia. Yeah, um, and you know he's a perfectly interesting, fringy kind of prospect, and he's still only twenty two, so it's not like it's crazy. But he was also mostly, you know, not all that productive in the Leafs organization, and it's like you can't get too wild about these guys. Every now and then, one of them is Andreas Janssen, but most of them are not. So, <laughs> worth keeping that in mind. But still, the draft is fun, and, uh, you know, it's okay to get excited as long as you keep your head straight about, like, what the actual chances are. Yeah, on a Leafs-specific note, um, or on a more Leafs-specific note, I'd expect to see Connor Brown traded at the draft. And oh, perhaps yeah. Nikita Zaitsev yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, Brown has seemed like he was 100% gone for the longest time now. Yeah. It just, you know, he makes too much money for what we're doing with him, and that's kind of the end of that. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't say he's overpaid, really. Like uh, he, He's, he's I think, a, a fine... See, see, it's been a while since I've seen Connor Brown, so I'm no longer as angry at him. <laughs> Watching <laughs> Connor Brown is incredibly frustrating. Um, Especially on the power play. Yeah. That's when... Well, it, it's yeah. because he's like, he's like a decent defensive 
bottom six player, like the third line player, ideally, mm-hmm. right? But like those types of players are never fun to watch because, you know, they're 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 good defensively, so the coach plays them. But then the, if they were better offensively, they'd be played higher up in the lineup. So your primary memory of them is just fucking up on offense, which is exactly how I feel about Connor Brown. But the reality <laughs> is he is actually fine on his deal. That's a that's a good deal even. And a team that does not have forward depth like the Leafs would should actually give up an asset for him. Yeah, uh, I mean, the Edmonton Oilers have made the most sense to me for the longest time because they have, like, how many good NHL-caliber wingers who are better than Connor Brown? Yeah, and, 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 like, I mean, I, I get the feeling they're going to be disappointed if they try and put him with Connor McDavid, for example, and, like, I think he'll, <laughs> he'll get more points because Connor McDavid could, you know, probably get me to 20 points. But, yeah. you know, it, he, he, that's certainly not his forte, but he, he does, he's not completely skillless. Yeah, um, but it's just a question of, you know, we shouldn't be paying that kind of money to a guy who's going to be on our fourth line when we're tap squeezed. Yep, so exactly. Sayonara. But um, yeah. And, and then you say it, this Marlowe deal that, I mean, it's cooled down a bit. Teams don't like to make trades during the finals because the league gets mad at them for that, for distracting from the main event. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, sorry, just sorry to tie this back to the NBA for a second, but like mm-hmm. in the NBA, it was like big news when Kyrie Irving, who's a, a high level free agent, um, changed his representation and that like dominated storylines for a day or two. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it goes, that's one of the things that gets annoying, right? About the NBA, as we discussed before, it's like, it's, it's overly focused on the individual at times. Yeah. Yeah. It can get a little, little crazy in that regard, but, uh, yeah. So I don't know if the Marlowe thing is going to happen. It seemed kind of like a bolt from the blue that it was even possible that he was willing to wave and stuff like mm. that, but his family's apparently moved. So, you know, it's certainly, it's a, it seems like a real possibility now. And, and But it's always going to be a tough trade to make. Yes, absolutely. And and then Zaitsev too. Um, I mean, there's been some reporting that, and we don't know how reliable it is, right? I, I don't know if anyone mm. reputable has actually said this, but like, it seems like there are teams, like multiple teams who are actually kind of in on Zaitsev. Yeah, um... I'm afraid to believe in that, but... Um, I think David Pagnotta was the one who said that. And yeah. Pagnotta is one of those guys where, like, literally every time his name comes up, I have to ask someone if he's reliable or not, because I don't remember. Yeah, I... He's had some... Mem- uh, I'm afraid I'm going to defame him. He's had some memorable successes. Yeah. Um, and he's also said a lot more things than just those memorable successes. How's that? Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, so maybe if there are genuinely multiple teams interested in Nikita Zaitsev, and it's worth noting that right-handed defensemen are kind of the left-handed relievers of hockey. There's always a market. Um, it, you know, it's not inconceivable to me that a team would give up some kind of low-end asset for him even. Uh, my expectation was we would get out of him at basically like a null trade. Yeah. Like we would get nothing of significant value back, but we also wouldn't have to take uh, distressed assets um if we do better than that terrific uh we still do have to replace him as catch has been been writing so we'll see how that goes uh maybe we should just briefly talk about the right hand defense market because there was a trade um shortly after the end of the finals mm-hmm. the um it, it was a perplexing trade sort of but weird from the buyer's the, perspective yeah, I think I get what they were thinking, but I also think that they were wrong. So <laughs> The flyer story. Uh, the f- yeah. <laughs> it made some sense. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers traded Radko Gudis, who is a talented, um, 
shot happy, so that's not maybe as great. Uh, but surprisingly effective bottom four defenseman slash also a war criminal because he throws hits that are just like unbelievably illegal. Yeah. Um, he's one of those guys. Uh, they traded Radko Gudis to the Washington Capitals and retained 30% salary on him. Pause. Uh, and they traded him for Matt Niskanen, who used to be a really good right-handed defenseman. Used to be a top pairing guy, really. Yeah, he was good. He was he was very good. He's had uh, a pretty down year, so far as anyone can measure. And he's how old is he? He's not thirty-two. Yeah, so it's not like it's a down year when he's twenty-six, and you're like, okay, that was weird. It's like down year thirty-two. I think the default assumption should be, oh, okay, this is who he is now. He's older. Yeah, the impression that I get is that they, the Flyers wanted uh, someone who they thought could play top pair on the right side, emphasis, with Ivan Provorov, who's a left-shooting defenseman, a uh, talented young player. But I don't think Matt Niskanen is that anymore. Um, so it could get a little bit dicey in that regard if they've just paid for what he used to be and what he won't be again. Um, I, I guess we're going to see. Radko Gudis is right now, I think, probably better. But they saved Washington a lot of money on the transaction, too. Because, one, Niskanen makes more, and two, the Flyers retained. So they've done the Capitals what I think is a pretty considerable favor in terms of freeing up some cap space. So I don't know there. I won't say that it's, like, unequivocally awful or anything. Like, you can see some, some logic behind it, and it could work out for the Flyers. But... I certainly think my starting point would be this is not a great trade for them. <laughs> um, but it's also of some tangential interest to the Leafs because it's a right-hand defenseman for a right-hand defenseman, and we're always kind of interested in that. I think, you know, I've been eyeing Rad Kogudas, despite his criminal flaws, <laughs> for for, um, for a while now. Yeah, but Gudas is... He's like if Polak was good. Yeah. Right, in, in, like, a lot of ways in that... Um, well, one, the obvious one is that, like, they're big, kind of brutish defensemen. They're, they're very physical. Um, they are not incredibly agile, but uh, Gudis mm. has a history of driving play, right? And a history of being a good defensive player, which is marred slightly by his two major flaws. Um, the first, which is the less serious of the two, is that he takes a lot of bad shots. Like he, he, he's a bombs away he guy. Bombs away. He's not a good shooter either. Like he's not terribly accurate. Um, and again, that's that's another similarity to Polak. Where Polak <laughs> felt like every time the puck went to him, he just shot it. And I actually get it in that sense because it's like, it's Roman Polak. What's he gonna do? Walk the line and thread uh, thread a ring through? <laughs> Is he gonna find someone on the back door? No. He's like, okay, I'm gonna get this to the net, and hopefully we get a rebound. Right? I don't think yeah. he thought, oh, this is gonna go in. He's just trying to put it in a better spot. Um, but right. the more serious concern with um, with Gudis is that, yeah, he occasionally likes to kill people. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, we all have flaws. Yeah. Um, so, I mean... That's a pronounced one. Yeah, uh, he, he, is, he is a dirty <laughs> player. Like, like yeah. I, I get annoyed at Kadri for the shit he bowls. Gudis is another yeah. level. Um, and he is. He's in that level of, like, maybe five or six guys who are, like, top-shelf dirty. Like, the yeah, Tom Wilson tier. Where, where it's, like... They are a legit concern <coughs> for the safety of the players around them. Yeah. Um, so, it's 
it's weird because I've always kind of coveted him as a player and always tried to reconcile in my head like how I how I'd root for someone like that. And I mean, again, you could say I already do that with Kadri. I don't think it's as pronounced there, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's it, he's always been a vexing guy to me for that reason. Um, I probably still would have taken him because I'm that desperate for a decent right defenseman, though. Yeah, I, I mean, it says a lot about you know how corrupt we've become in our desperation. Yes, but uh, you know. <laughs> but you just you find yourself thinking like, okay, if he could just smarten up a little bit, he could be really effective. I'm not saying he'll be a top pair guy, but like, I, I think the Caps are probably quite happy with this trade. They got a guy who can stiffen up the defense score a little bit, um, and they've saved quite a bit of money, which they're apparently going to use on Carl Hagelin, which, okay, I mean, I, I don't think Hagelin is quite what he used to be, but that's fine. Um, but in terms of why the Leafs couldn't make a play for Gudas, you know, I don't know if they would have any interest and, you know, those flaws that we've noted are pronounced. Um, but also we don't have a guy who has been a top pair right defenseman on a championship team other than Ron Hainsey, who is expiring. (laughs) And I, I think most people would agree that at this point, Ron Hainsey is not that and he also shoots left. He just plays right a lot of the time. Um, you, you know, Matt Niskanen could mentally check a box for the Flyers in terms of we really need someone to play with Provorov. And he also, I think, which, still is a decent puck mover from what I've seen, from the tracking you've yeah. seen. Yeah, some of those tracking stats still look really good on him, and it's worth noting that there was a time not that far removed um, where he was, like, widely lauded as being a bona fide first pair right defenseman in like the stats community and everywhere else. Like he was really well thought of uh, and and maybe even considered a bit underrated. And if maybe, you know, things just didn't quite go his way this year and there's a rebound in the cards. uh, Yeah, it could work out there, but I, it's hard to get a gauge on the right-hand defense market. It's hard to get a gauge on any NHL trade market, but it is very tough to point to where we could have gone in and said, like, this is the acquisition to make. And so it's hard to know what Kyle has up his sleeve. You know, someone was asking on Twitter, they were saying, there have been, you know, all these trades for right-handed defensemen, which is our glaring need, and we don't really seem to get in on them. And, you know, we did take Jake Muzzin, who's a left shot. But most of those trades, you find yourself thinking, well, I'm not sure there was a fit there. Travis Hamonic cost too much. Um... This trade, the return was Niskanen, who we probably couldn't match in terms of specifically what they wanted. Nick Jensen, I would have liked. Um, I won't lie, uh, but I don't know if he would have extended with us or not. You know, it's it's tough to know uh, how exactly we crack into this market, other than, you know, you got to keep your eyes open. But there are still teams that are making curious defensemen evaluations, and the hope is we can take advantage of one of them. Yeah. So... Woo. Okay, yeah, that was a, a long podcast. That was like 80% basketball. Yeah, uh, I have actually like shredded my throat. I apologize for the coughing throughout this podcast. No, so, so. Actually, just to tie this full circle, are, are, do you think mm-hmm. you're going to be like an actual Raptors fan after this or like like a, a more serious Raptors fan than you were in the past? Like, has it, has it gotten you on board with the NBA in a more serious way? What I figure I'll do is I'll read about them. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of what I do is like I'll, I'll follow along. Um, I probably won't sit and devote like 
the watching time that I do, just one, because I don't think I can adopt another sport at this time. No, and, it, and it, it's... Uh, until the playoffs. It, it's hard. It's hard to, I mean, for... I mean, not that this is, like, a very grueling task, but, like, we end up watching most Leaf games, right? And, like, yeah. by nature of that, like, it ends up sucking up a lot of time. Yeah, you know, it's just like, at a certain point, it's just sort of like, I can only obsess so much, and this podcast is evidence I probably do too much. But certainly, like, I I have a higher opinion of the entertainment product of the Raptors than I did before. Like, it was actually, like, genuinely interesting to watch. It was exciting to be be a part of, and I, I know that this is possibly a one-off, maybe probably a one-off, but it, it was still really cool to be a part of so i certainly think that um i'll want to keep aware of it just for no other reason than i can now talk intelligently to my co-workers about basketball for a minute so yeah all right cool um see that's pretty much it from us for this week uh thank you all for listening you can find all of mine fullman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rvn thank you all for listening and we'll see you in a little bit